Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. .edu/podcast What do you love about music? To begin with <laughs> everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Kotz. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. If you've ordered a grande skim latte in a certain coffee chain in America this week, you know this man has a new album out, Paul McCartney. We're going to tell you if it's any good. Plus, we have Portland Ork Pop band The Decemberists live in the studio for an exclusive performance and some intriguing conversation. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. That's the police when they were on performing Message in a Bottle. But if you read the blog of police drummer Stuart Copeland, the band was definitely not on when they performed (laughs) that song and a bunch of other ones on their opening concert, their first in 23 years, Jim, the other night in Vancouver. The reviewers were very kind to this show. Entertainment Weekly rated the show an A-. The critic from the London Mail on Sunday declared they've been rehearsing for two months, and it shows. They're as tight as Sting's trousers. This is just wishful thinking. People are glad to have them back. One of the things that I love about the police is, A, that they hate each other, and, B, that they're very honest (laughs) about hating each other, as anybody who heard our interview with Andy Summers knows. Stuart Copeland ripped on the show, Jim. It's amazing because people who bought tickets for this show were paying $225 plus service fees, not to mention how much they were paying on the secondary market. I mean, thousands and thousands of dollars. If they read Stuart Copeland's blog, they think, (laughs) we got ripped off. I mean, listen to these quotes from Stuart Copeland's blog. This is unbelievably lame. We are the mighty police and we are totally at sea. At one point, he, ta- he talks about Sting. He says Sting is trying to do some dance movie. He's trying to uh, time his leap. And he says uh, he's more reminiscent of a petulant pansy <laughs> instead of the god of rock. Uh, oh, in man. another song, he's ripping on Andy Summers, the guitar player, and saying, well, we were all in time, but meanwhile, uh, Andy Summers was out in Idaho somewhere while yeah, while they were in Vancouver. Played. I think that's great. I think that we should have a new Sound Opinions Honorary Rock Critic Award, and I think Stuart Copeland gets one. <laughs> Absolutely. Stuart Copeland, the rock critic, the best rock critic in America, in North America this week, without a doubt, in terms of the way he reviewed his own show. We've got a couple of other uh, stories, Greg, about uh, concerts that are costing too darn much and maybe people starting to rebel against them. We have to go to Italy for this, but you know, my people don't take anything lightly over there. Italians are passionate (laughs) lot. Barbara Streisand was set to perform her first ever concert in Italy, kicking off a tour there uh, that was going to start in Rome on June. 15th, that show has been canceled. The promoters are swearing it has nothing to do with this huge protest that's been swirling for a couple of weeks in Italy. The Italians are saying Barbara's 
tickets are too damn expensive. This is an outrage. This is an insult to the people of Italy. Don't even come here if you're going to charge this much money. We're talking about seats that are uh, in the realm of uh, the maximum is more than a thousand American dollars for for the very best seats. It's absolutely absurd and shameful. Those are their words. These uh, consumer groups protesting. She's canceled the first gig. I wonder if the whole Italian tour is going down the toilet. And it serves her right. I mean, that's ridiculous taking that much money from people. Jim, I want to bring some of those Italians to the Hamptons this summer because uh, <laughs> yeah. they, they would be uh, perfect for protesting what I see as another egregious example of how rock concerts are turning into an elitist event. Five shows for $15,000, a series called Social in East Hampton, New York, that will feature Prince, Billy Joel, Dave Matthews, Tom Petty, and James Taylor. That's $3,000 per concert. What do you get for your money? Well, you get day beds, ottomans, Moroccan pillows. You got a chef cooking away. You get free parking. <laughs> oh, well, free parking, yeah. Unbelievable. What is, wait a minute. Dave Matthews has made a career out of holding ticket prices down. Tom Petty is famous for standing up for the consumer. He sued his own record company yeah. to stand up for the consumer to keep the price of CDs and albums lower. Uh, what are they doing on that list? I think these guys are looking on eBay and looking at the police tickets and what they're going for in the secondary market, $3,000, $4,000 per ticket. And they're going, well, why can't can't we just charge this anyway and keep it for ourselves as opposed to some you know, broker getting this kind of money? We're seeing this more and more, Jim. Lollapalooza is offering these luxury uh, benefits. Uh, they're cabanas. You cabanas can rent a corporate on Lake Michigan. Cabana, yeah. And then in, at Sasquatch, uh, the, the big festival in Washington State, a few weeks ago, they were offering $500 festival passes for, that offered hot showers and air-conditioned bathrooms. This is a bad trend, Jim. We're, we're seeing rock concerts become the elitist equivalent of like going to the Kentucky Derby. It's not a populist event anymore. There are events increasingly for the ultra-rich. You know what Hunter Thompson said about the Kentucky Derby. It is decadent and depraved, and so are these concerts. Greg, that is a song called The Thanks I Get, which is a bonus track from Wilco's new album, Sky Blue Sky, which you may or may not have heard uh, since it's available for download. You probably heard it on television (laughs) in a certain car company's commercial. We have talked a lot on Sound Opinions about this trend of artists turning to TV commercials to have their music heard. Their defense is radio isn't playing us. It's hard to get our music heard. MTV doesn't play music anymore. Yeah, we sold this song to commercials so that people could get introduced to it. Our anachronistic, dinosaur-like art critic objection to this is, you know, it's supposed to be art kids. You know, we'd rather have the music as music than think of the music perpetually linked to this advertising. Wilco, old country heroes from Chicago, are probably one of the last bands we ever thought would do this, but they are putting a very unique spin on it. I think that's the news here. They have sold not only one, but six tracks from their new album, Sky Blue Sky, to Volkswagen, which is going to do a series of commercials, each using a different one of these songs. In other words, they're going to advertise Wilco's new album, for Wilco at the same time that they're advertising their cars, which, you know, I can understand why Wilco, besides the money that no doubt changed hands, were, were eager to do that. I mean, this is a national, weeks-long advertising campaign for their new album. Mm-hmm. We're seeing more artists do this, Jim. Paul McCartney, whose album we're going to be talking about in a few minutes on this show, is not generally going to be played on a lot of commercial radio stations, but it is going to be played in every Starbucks store in America, which is visited by, you know, six million customers a day. Paul McCartney and artists like that are looking at alternatives to commercial radio because they're not playing their songs. Earlier this year, Jim, we got all over John Mellencamp for selling that song, This Is Our Country, to a TV commercial. Right. And, and his, uh, his response was, you know what? I'm not getting played on the radio anymore. This is the only way I can get my music out there well, and it, let people know that I have a new album out. This trend says two things. It says that the major label system is broken when after 45 years you have Paul McCartney leaving the uh, EMI group of labels, which made him famous as part of the Beatles, to record for essentially a coffee company. And you have radio not playing music anymore. So the artists are so desperate to have their stuff heard that they're going to all these other venues. You know, the same way that burger joints give out stupid little plastic toys for your kid. They're they're giving music out at, at these places. Look, the problem is the insidiousness of it. On my way into the studio right now, I purchased my Vente sugar-free iced <laughs> vanilla brevet latte, right? And I was talking to the manager of one of these Starbucks. He said, 
After the third or fourth spin that started at 5 in the morning, he was sick of the new McCartney album. He tried to put a new CD in. The company had actually programmed the CD players in all of these thousands of Starbucks chains so that the only album that could be played on the release date of McCartney's disc was McCartney's album. He said we couldn't play any other CD. <laughs> that is seriously <laughs> Big Brother Insidious. <laughs> and under the bows I'll clothe in a snowy shroud. A few weeks ago, we had the opportunity to sit down with one of the rising indie rock bands in the country, The Decembrists. They actually just put out their first major label record, The Crane Wife, the fourth album of their career. The band is now selling out shows around the country at the theater level, and they're going to be coming back through in the summer gym playing large outdoor spaces with an orchestra. The Decemberists are part of this genre, Greg, that we've dubbed orc pop or orchestral pop, stemming from those great records like Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. The fact they're going to be playing some shows this summer across the country with an actual orchestra in each city is exciting, but I'll tell you something more exciting. They came here and they covered Brian Eno's I'll Come Running. I didn't bribe them. I didn't. There was no need for the elite. You know, alarm because they did it of their own volition. We're here in the studio with the Decemberists. All five of them are here Nate, John, Chris, Jenny, and Colin. Welcome to Sound Opinions, folks. Thank you. We had you uh, a couple of months ago, Colin, and you promised to come back with the whole band, and here you are. And here I am. I always keep my promises. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is a treat. Uh, You're in the middle of a two-night stand in Chicago as we speak, and uh, that isn't enough. You're going to come back and play this big show for free in the summer with an orchestra. Have you ever done anything live with an orchestra? No, it'll be our first time when we do that this summer. We're we're doing a a series of them. We start out in L.A. with the L.A. Philharmonic at the Hollywood Bowl. Wow. And then we move eastward and do D.C. area, Atlanta, Philadelphia, Boston, play New York without an orchestra, but then Chicago. So that's that'll, that's what will happen. Pretty fascinating. Uh, fascinating rise for the band. Uh, fourth album, right, Colin? The Crane Wife on uh, Capitol Records. Mm-hmm. Sort of a quick rise. Uh, indie band for a number of years. Not exactly a conventional use of instrumentation. I mean, there's banjos, bazookies. And you and you write songs that uh, are kind of certainly not in the in the mainstream vernacular. Uh, you're not talking about the breakup you just had last week. And boy, I'm really having a bad life. You're writing these fabulous stories and uh, Civil War murder ballads. And uh, <laughs> what, what is the one song about the the Russian winter of 1942 when the German <laughs> army was in Stalingrad? Yeah, well, Leningrad. Leningrad, um, all yeah, that at the, the time. The siege of Leningrad, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so all this stuff is sort of set in another time frame and, and, and kind of these fabulous tales. I mean, not exactly a, uh, if you were creating a rock band, you know, uh, at the turn of the 21st century, you say, wow, that's going to work. That is definitely going to get you guys to the top. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it started out that way. I think I, I, I felt like I, at the beginning was when I was working on songs and I just moved to Portland and um, I felt like these were, they're they're so straightforward to me. They felt like just straightforward pop songs, and the lyrical content was starting to get a little bit out there. But I I felt like, for whatever reason, I didn't want to just end up like another guitar band. And so we all kind of fell together because we were all interested in in playing other instruments other than the traditional electric bass and and keyboard. You know, they both Jenny and Nate had a real interest in in exploring playing upright and playing accordion and other stuff. And so when we initially we were like a, we were a four piece with acoustic guitar, accordion, upright bass and drums, which was very unconventional at the time. We kind of looked like a salsa band. <laughs> <laughs> so what ha- what happened that you were able to the one thing that I think is most pronounced about the band from the early days to where it is now is that you've combined that sort of quirkiness and that eccentricity and the fact that you were different from so many other bands. And now there's that muscle and power in the band as well where you can go out and play a 2,500-seat theater and have no problem at all engaging the back rows of that. And in the summer, you'll be coming and doing these big outdoor venues and with an orchestra. So there's a power there. Was that something that was a conscious decision within the band to sort of maybe beef it up a little bit, muscle it up a little bit, or is that just sort of evolving from just playing a lot of shows? Because so much of indie rock is, is so twee. Yeah. But you guys rock. Well, everybody has a is is into rocking, you know. And I think <laughs> our first record, if I could just say that in a, no. in a less twee way, um, 
We're very interested in rocking. <laughs> um, I've been studying rocking for years. But we, I think our first, so our first record was our, kind of our salsa band thing where we were the four-piece. And then I think at one point Jenny for the second record was like, should I maybe play Hammond? I mean, it was almost like an identity thing that that, that was all that we played was upright and accordion and acoustic guitar and, yeah. and drums. And then we were like, well, let's start to bring back those other things and maybe Nate will play a little more electric bass and Jenny play a little more organ and Wurlitzer. And then it, with this last record, it was really kind of, let's just pull out the stops and, and see what happens. Well, we've got, so, so it's a slightly more stripped down, but not entirely. Uh, we've got the accordion and one snare drum and the stand-up bass. Why don't you guys play us something? Okay. What are we starting? This is O Valencia. Is that right? Yeah, this, we're starting with this song called O Valencia. A one, two, three, four. The Decemberist Valencia. 
Coming up in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, more discussion and live performance from the Decembrists, as well as a special reenactment of their Crane Wife Suite. That is something you've just got to hear. Uh, later on in the show, a review of the latest from Paul McCartney. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're going to continue our discussion with the Decembrists. They came in to visit us a few weeks after the Virginia Tech massacre, and I asked Colin Malloy about it uh, because you could tell it had an effect on their live performances. Um, Colin, in the last couple of nights at uh, the shows, you've been addressing what happened at Virginia Tech, the massacre there, and, and sort of addressed it in the context of some of the subject matter of your own songs. Could you address again what you, what you talk about on stage uh, the last couple of nights at these shows in the context of art and how it reflects what's going on in the world around us? Yeah, well, I guess um, just feeling in, in an awkward position. I mean, I, I, like a lot of people, was horrified by the news, obviously, and, and uh, it just seems like a, a terrible situation. But uh, immediately I felt like they were they were kind of glomming on to the fact that, you know, there were early warning signs that he was in, in these creative writing classes and writing plays and short stories that involved rape and, and murder, and that was a, should have been a warning flag, you know, that this person should have been in counseling. And while I think in that, that context it may be true, and there was a lot of, you know, instances around that, the fact that he was like stalking women and just being kind of generally creepy, that that, that can be a warning sign. But but if you just, you know, as, as so often the media does, we'll just kind of take these little sound bites and be like, oh, wow, you know, he was, he had kind of a macabre aesthetic, a macabre fascination that should, we should, we can, we can stop this in the future if only we look at those early warning signs. And that potentially, I mean, that can lead to really devastating things to to people's creative freedom and, and imagination. And I feel like, as somebody who does deal in in rape and murder in in our songs, uh, it kind of puts you in an awkward position. Like how how you know we even have a song that sort of openly advocates random killing. Um, of course, we none of us are are remotely violent people, but there there is those darker corners of humanity which I think are, are really great to explore in, in in songs and in in stories. You know, when I was a kid I I when I was in second grade I wrote a play called The Bloody Night, which then the cover I'd drawn was like this knight lying on the ground with a sword and blood just going everywhere. But thankfully my parents were were not knee jerk and neither were my teachers, but Certainly in some situations, if somebody looked at what happened in the news and, and really took that to heart, you know, these, I, in that situation, I potentially would have been sent to counseling, <laughs> yeah. you know. Well, it goes yeah. against the whole notion of, of art as catharsis. I mean, the fact that this troubled individual was kicked out of creative writing classes, perhaps if he'd stayed and had that outlet uh, to, to write, to get it out some way, yeah. you know. I mean, everybody needs to get out their emotions some way. and yeah. So were you were you a messed up kid in Missoula, Montana? No, no, I was, and, and getting <laughs> I wasn't messed up, but though I I had the most macabre fascinations you can imagine. I was so into axe murderers and knights and bloody things, and thankfully I had parents who just kind of understood that that was just you know the trappings of a young boy's imagination. Mm. Um, I do believe that 
that violence does belong in fiction alone. You know, I think that that's the only place that it should really thrive because I think that there's a lot of opportunity there just to explore ourselves. And Well, and it's a great way to confront this stuff, too. It's like, you know, we're not going to wallow in the misery of it. We're confronting it and we're laughing at it and we're kind of bringing it out into the open and making it not so scary maybe yeah, in some exactly. ways too, you know, which is a time immemorial tradition as well. And playing on people's imaginations, you know, which is ex- exciting to try to scare people a little bit, you know. Everybody <laughs> likes to be scared. Well, I don't, and I don't know if I, I heard it correctly, but um, when you were talking last night on stage about the Virginia Tech thing, uh, you followed it up with a cover, Brian Eno's "I'll Come Running," yeah. which, if you if you look at that song, it's it's really just sort of a, a song about love and wanting to help somebody out, uh, which on its face wouldn't have anything to do. But I thought last night it served as a a pretty poignant and very touching tribute to thirty some odd dead people in Virginia. Yeah, you know, uh, the on the set list was "Culling of the Fold," which is a, a a song that didn't make it on the record, but that's the one that kind of openly advocates. Violence, and I just don't. I mean, even though I do, I don't feel like it's it's inappropriate, you know, to to have written that song or to play yeah. it or to, to won't, you know, to retire it forever. But it's just that I think it's it still felt a little too soon to start running around the stage saying "cut 'em up, boy, cut 'em up, girl," which yeah, is kind yeah. of the the lyrics of the song. So it would be better to do this sweet Eno song, which is about about coming to the aid of somebody. Yeah. Why don't you play us another tune? Okay. Two, three, four.
Brian Eno, I'll come running. Uh, you have just made Jim DeRigatis's month, if not his well, year. Well, short of getting Brian Eno himself on, I can <laughs> stop doing radio now. It's never going to get better than that. We should point out on that song and the previous one, uh, John, the drummer, with the high vocals. Boy, that uh, you sound just like a girl, and I mean that as a complete compliment. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I got a strong feminine side. I always like to, I always like to mention that when people say you sing like a girl. And uh, well, no, it, what amazed me last night watching you was was you know you guys do not shy away from your thirteen eighth time signature kind of you know in the great progressive rock tradition. Uh, not not necessarily pointlessly so in a yes tales from topographic oceans way, but but those are those are difficult arrangements and and it yeah. was impressive to watch you being able to do the vocal parts while doing these complicated arrangements. Thank you. I sometimes feel I I haven't quite hit the mark every night, ah. but that's all right. That's nice to hear. Now that's been a dirty word for such a long time in 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 rock uh, history. You know, I mean the notion is progressive rock was a good idea that quickly went bad, you know, in the 70s. Pretension came in, and then the punks had to come and kill it off. I guess we, we've <laughs> talked about this before, Colin, but, but you guys don't shy away from doing a great 12-minute four-part suite like The Island with complicated time signatures, and we had glockenspiel in it. You know, there are times where you can look at what the Decemberists are doing on stage and think of that immortal scene in Spinal Tap where they bring out Stonehenge <laughs> and the midget, you know. Um, it's become a, la- a laughing stock, but what you're drawing, it seems to me, from progressive rock is that ambition. Like, let's let, let's not be hemmed in by any boundaries of song length or, or what influences we can use, what instruments. Right. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that we look at it through the lens of not only, you know, punk rock, which is kind of the main thing that informs the kind of music that we play and listen to these days. I mean, you can't just you can't get around it. But also we look at it through the lens of Spinal Tap and being, you know, kids when Spinal Tap is came out. So, we, so there's, there's, there's lots of levels there. So it's almost interesting to go back and look at progressive rock in that context, you know, and, and knowing what we know. Yeah. You know, which was, would be different if also if we were a lot older who, you know, if we were in our 20s when Yes was coming out with records and, and felt like we needed, you needed to kick against that. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, why don't you guys play us another song? Okay. If you would be so kind. Yeah, what do we got now? Uh, Perfect Crime? Sure. One, two, three, four. Sing muse of the passion of the pistol. Sing news of the warning by the whistle A night so dark and waning A dawn obscured by slight sky raining Five and twenty burglars by the reservoir A teenage look at a single time The mogul's daughter in hot time The mogul's fingers the wrong guy All right It was a perfect, perfect Rings out from somewhere upstairs. 
Congrats, Jenny. You I have this look it. of like, I made it through. I made it through. Well, you know, he just passed that solo on to me for the acoustic. Yeah, that's the second time. Second time I've screwed second. it up. So I'm ready. Next next one's going to be first well, time. Accordions, man, you got to play, you know, the keys with one hand, the buttons with the other, and then squeeze the thing. Yeah, yeah. And I get so used to Cohen playing, you know, listen. listen just to, That's my moment to just enjoy listening, <laughs> usually. <laughs> anyway, that was fun. Oh, very cool. Before we let you go, let's talk a little bit about recording The Crane Wife and, and writing the songs. There's a Japanese folk tale, mm-hmm. children's tale, that, that inspired, that, that is The Crane Wife, that kind of sort of links these al- songs, but we're not calling it a concept album. We're not calling it a concept album. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Although they are conceptually linked. Yeah, I mean, the, the three songs, The Crane Wife 1, 2, and 3, obviously, are, are linked, tell tell a kind of a narrative, a complete narrative, but... The rest, of, the rest of the songs are not part of that concept. What was the, the Crane Wife uh, story about? Uh, the Crane Wife story is, in a nutshell, I've sold this so many times now that I even screw it up. I used to, I, it's usually at the beginning you kind of flub it every once in a while, and then in the middle you like nail it, but then once you kind of told See, it you're more. too much of a classicist, because if you were a postmodern, you could just change it. You could tell a different story every time would, that I question was that. asked of you, yeah. But my brain slowly <laughs> oozes out of my ears about the fifth week of tour. So <laughs> I'm going on rote memory here. So, okay, feudal Japan. Peasant is walking through the woods one evening, and he finds a wounded crane on the ground. There's an arrow in the crane's wing. He removes it. The crane is revived and flies away. A couple days later, a mysterious woman shows up at his door, takes her in. This would be better if we had some sound effects. and We, we could have it. like that. 
if we were at the Fitzgerald Theater, you know, we could have those Keeler like who's the guy who does sound effects for Keeler? <laughs> yes. Oh man. We can approximate you, it. Though. You know, like some, a bird. You know, a, a girl being like. That's bird like. Yeah. Okay. Here, oh, look, we'll do go. it with sound effects. Right. Jenny, you're, you'll be the girl too, if, if if ever you need to make. The girl will be the glass spiel. I can talk too. Or yeah. And... Okay. All right. Ready? Yeah. Okay. Feudal Japan. <laughs> um, uh, a peasant is walking in the woods one day. <laughs> he finds a crane on the ground with an arrow in its wing. He pulls the, he pulls the arrow from the wing, and the the crane is revived and flies away. <laughs> Uh, a couple days later, a mysterious woman shows up at his door. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> he he takes the woman in, and they and uh, she lives there for a time, and they they eventually fall in love and are married. <laughs> um, but they're very poor. So uh, she suggests that she weaves a cloth for him to sell at the at the market. That's the market sounds. Okay, they're at the market now. But the condition being that while she's weaving it, that he can't look in because if he does, she'll turn back and oh, I know. I gave that away. Okay, so the condition being that he doesn't look into the room while she's weaving. Don't that's, look, that's, that's all. That's all he knows. One day, his curiosity gets the best of him. He opens the door and reveals that she's in fact a crane. She's been turning herself into a crane and pulling the feathers from her wings and putting it into the cloth, which is what makes it so beautiful. But him seeing her breaks the spell, and she flies away. <laughs> And uh, that's the end. I'm sorry, Colin. That's a weird See, thing to write a song bad. about. That's a <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a dumb idea. Gosh. Now that we, now that I have a visual for it and the kind of the audio, I'm like, Kyle. It's a sad story, though. It's really sad. That's really a bummer. Sad. You tell this to your kid, Hank. I haven't yet. He doesn't understand English, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Colin Malloy and the Decemberists, Jenny Conley, Chris Funk. John Moen and uh, Nate Query. Thank you. Thanks for having us here. Rambling, where to begin? A taste of summer on your peppery skin. Been saying the one. Coming up next on Sound Opinions, a review of Paul McCartney's Starbucks released album that's in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. La da 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 da. My girl, linen and curls, lips parting like a flaggle unfurled. She's grand, the bend of her hand, digging deep into the sweep of the sand. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That was me. Well, that was me, Royal Iris, on the river, mercy beaten with the band. That was me. Yeah, that was me, sweating cobwebs under contract in the cellar on TV. That was me. Me.
Paul McCartney looking back through an imaginary photo album of his life and saying, that was me. I did this and I did that. And uh, Mercy beaten with the band. Yeah, what what group is he talking about Yeah, there? there was some band that McCartney was in many years ago. Uh, I, I, Beatles, maybe? No, uh, it was Herman's Hermits. Uh, that's right? it. That's yeah. it. 21st uh, studio album from Paul McCartney uh, coming out. In case you have not heard about it, I don't know how you couldn't have, because if you went into anywhere near a Starbucks store or opened a newspaper or opened a, a music blog on, on the Internet, people were talking about the marketing of the new Paul McCartney album as much as they were about the actual content of well, it. Well, we didn't even hit on this when we were talking about the Starbucks thing, but in addition to the Starbucks hook, it's the week after the 40th anniversary of the release of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which got a ton of media attention. Right. And the week before thereabouts, his 65th birthday. The man who wrote When I'm 64, turning 65 on June 18. The man's timing has been impeccable for a long time, Jim. Uh, <laughs> the guy knows how to market himself. He's an astute businessman. He is one of the uh, major recording artists, one of the backbones of the major label recording industry as we knew it in the 20th century. And now he has cut ties with that uh, industry and essentially uh, decided to go in with a giant coffee company to market his new record, thinking that he's got a better chance of getting word out about his record through that means rather than going through the commercial radio system and the commercial uh, major label system, which has failed him in recent years in his estimation. Uh, So it's interesting to see how he's marketing this record. He's also putting this record up on the internet for the first time. This is the first McCartney solo record that will be made available via iTunes and other internet uh, websites. In addition, he's putting out a number of his solo records from the past on, uh, on the internet as well. So even though McCartney's turning 65, an age when a lot of people retire, McCartney is still looking ahead. He very much feels like he's jump-started his career with this new record called Memory Almost Full. He's looking back and yet looking ahead to uh, renewing his career. Let's hear a track from the new album, Only Mama Knows on Sound Opinions. That is, of course, Sir Paul McCartney with the track Only Mama Knows from his 21st solo album, Memory Almost Full. I gave it three stars out of four in the Sun-Times when I reviewed it the other day, and I still got 100 emails of hate mail. <laughs> you know, I mean, you dare to criticize Paul McCartney, St. Paul of McCartney at all. And, you know, how could you do this? How could you? But let's face it, uh, gang, he's made some really rotten solo albums. I, I dislike him when he's in sappy romantic mood a la Silly Love Songs. How can you not love him when he's in sappy romantic mood a la Maybe I'm Amazed? There are such extremes in his work. But I'll tell you one strain that, that has been there from the beginning that I've always been suspect of, although even this has had its, its exceptions. This man has been nostalgic and wistful about lost youth and the time before he was even born since he was 18 or 20. Penny Lane is a good example of this, but something like When I'm 64, and in fact the entire Sgt. Pepper's concept, is a very bad example of it. He's always wanted to go back to a simpler, better, more rose-colored time, and there's a lot of this on this album. In, in an interesting track called Vintage Clothes, which is uh, one of the rockers, he says, don't live in the past, don't hold on to something that's changing fast. And then virtually every song on this album is about living in the past. And he even imagines his wake. No need to be sad on the day that I died, like jokes to be told and stories of old to be rolled out like carpets. Well, but he's looking ahead there, Jim. Well, yeah, he is. <laughs> but he's still, you know, he's still thinking about why we're going to remember him. And he has every right to. This is a genius of the 20th and 21st centuries. He's going to be remembered, there's no doubt about it, in, in eons to come. 
in the way that Mozart and Bach and Beethoven are. I will say, none of those gentlemen ever shilled their sheet music in a Vienna coffee shop the way <laughs> McCartney is selling us this album in Starbucks. But I tried to set that aside and listen to the music. There are three lousy songs on here. It all comes when he slows down. You Tell Me, The End of the End, that song about his wake, and Gratitude are all overcooked, soggy, sullen plotters that should have been left on the cutting room floor. The rest of the album is evidence of a real... Uh, inspiring late career resurgence. I, I liked his last album quite a bit, Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. This is even stronger, I think. And when he's rocking and keeping things moving, despite his wistful nostalgia of years gone by, this is a really good record. Well, I think it's an appropriate record for a man who's uh, who's turning 65. The one thing I like about this record, and the problem I had with a lot of McCartney's records in the last, what, two, three decades? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the emotional investment in the material. I think he's emotionally invested in this record. He's looking at some real-life issues. There's a song here which I think directly addresses his divorce from Heather Mills in a surprisingly generous fashion. Uh, That song, Gratitude, that you hate, I actually kind of like because it does remind me of Maybe I'm Amazed. It's kind of a, a wrenching soul ballad, but at the same time, he's talking in surprisingly generous terms about, you know what, I was lonely and at the time, you know, you were, you were the person who stepped into my life and made me feel better. And I thank you for that. Well, I was lonely I was living with a memory But my golden lonely nights ended when you sheltered me Now, a lot of people were expecting this to be the divorce album, mm-hmm. and instead it isn't overall, but you think this tune is. Yeah, and I think that's what he's trying to do here in a lot of these songs where he's reminiscing. He's trying to remember the good things in his life and what was valid about them as he's looking his mortality in the face. He's turning 65. He's written a song about his wake. He's facing death. I like the fact that he is confronting the reality of his life and not trying to make himself out to be something he's not. So I I appreciate the emotional investment in this record most of all. Uh, Musically, I think it's an ambitious record. I think McCartney's had real issues with taking good ideas and not being able to finish them off into into finished songs. But I would say there's only one song on here that really is a maudlin piece of tripe, and that's See Your Sunshine. Uh, That would have fit in in a a lot of those disposable McCartney albums in the 70s. Look what you do to me, baby. You're making me feel so fine, so fine, so fine. Step out in front of me, baby. They want you in the front line. They want to see your sunshine. But I think the rest of these songs are pretty good, and I like that five-song suite at the end of the record where he sort of takes his life from beginning to end. It sort of starts in those early days with those snapshots of his youth and ends up with him looking at his funeral, and then he ends up with that rocking tune. Instead of sort of bringing everybody down with the, with the scenes from his, uh, from his wake, he ends up on that hard rocking song. He nod your head, him, yeah. If you love your life, nod your head, and it's just a, a nice rocking moment at the end of the record. This is not a masterpiece on the level of the Beatles, but as a McCartney albums goes, this is one of the best albums he's done in two or three decades. Well, we rate things on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. Yeah, I'll add that 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 song that you dislike as well. There's, there's four stinkers, I think, but the rest of the record is so strong and it's so surprising. I, you know, he he definitely benefits from the fact that we've lowered the bar for any solo yeah. Paul McCartney record. But nevertheless, I'd say on a buy it, burn it, trash it scale, this is a buy it record. I have to say, I was fascinated with the emotional content, the personal content in this record. Uh, he's a major celebrity. He hasn't been this intimate in a really long time. For, for that reason alone, I'd say buy this record. All right, what do we got next week on the show? Jim, next week uh, we've got a bunch of great bands on the show. In fact, it is our mid-year best of list. Oh, uh, we live We love these. our lists. We love our lists, and we're going to have one next week. Here are our top ten records of the year so far. Got some thank yous to say, Greg. Sound Opinions was produced, as always, by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. The Decemberist performance was recorded by Mary Gaffney and Sarah Toulouse. And as always, our fearless leader and executive producer is Tori Southside Malatia, who has never sold out to advertising and never would. <laughs> 
On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. New messages. Yeah, hi, this is Paul calling. I really enjoyed listening to uh, the show about covers and the ongoing attention paid to great covers. And while I agree that Louis Louis is an artistic uh, success and probably the most prominent cover of all time, I think artistically the most important cover of all time is the Aretha Franklin recording of Respect. cover of Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? My Culture Club is just the creepiest doc song ever. I'd like to recommend Walk This Way by Run DMC. Sid Vicious from the Sex Pistols, My Way. I think the Marilyn Manson version of Tina's Love is the best ever of all time. Hi, this is Omar and my daughter Sarah. It's got to be the uh, Joe Cocker version of Little Help from My Friends. I mean, he probably has the rock rock and roll's greatest scream throughout that song. Nobody has ever got that scream that just chills you to the bone. Hi, my name is Tanya. I'm calling from Greenville, North Carolina, and I just wanted to say you cannot talk about covers without mentioning Tina Turner doing Proud Mary and what she did for that song as opposed to the Creedence Clearwater Revival version just is beyond words. Her energy and her power, especially considering that her personal life was hellish with her husband at the time, what she brought to that song is just phenomenal. Raleigh, North Carolina. In my opinion, Mike Ness's cover of Bob Dylan's Don't Think Twice is hands down the best cover song ever recorded by anybody. Favorite cover is Sinead O'Connor's cover of Prince's Nothing Compares to You. The best one that I can think of is on the Red House Painters album, Songs for a Blue Guitar, all mixed up. It was originally a car song, but he definitely owns that song after that. I nominate Fiona Apple's version of Across the Universe. Uh, when I first heard this at the end of Pleasantville, uh, it just about made me cry. Hello, my name is Rudolph Krauss. I'm right here in Chicago, and I want to suggest Head Like a Hole as one of the best cover songs ever. Not the one by Trent Reznor, but the one by Devo. I didn't think it could be done. That seemed to be the kind of song that was permanently associated with a particular artist, and they came along and reinterpreted it anyway, and they're clearly having a blast with their own particular style of pop music. messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.